This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. Welcome to Pet Chat. I'm Jane Klein and with me today, Dr. David Tabrat. Hi, Jane. And what will we be talking about today, David? Ferrets. Ferrets sound good. And yep. Danny Boss is with Hi. us. Hello. And we're going to be speaking to... We'll speak to our resident reptile expert, Brock. He's a, an expert, not, yes. a, not a breeder. Oh, and breeder too. Okay. so And, of course, we'll be taking your calls from uh, 12.30 today. David Tabrett, we're talking Hello, about Jane. ferrets today. Yeah, yeah. I'm, Cute little pets. They are. I'm a big fan of ferrets. Um, and, look, I grew up in Queensland, and ferrets are actually a banned species in Queensland. Why is that? Mm, I don't know, but they are a carnivorous species. Um, and they, you know, can get out and attack wildlife and things. So, if, if I mean, if they're great little pets, if they've got to be kept enclosed, similar to what we suggest with cats, very, very inquisitive. They're just so much fun to watch and to play with. And uh, I don't know if anyone hasn't seen a ferret before. They're sleek little, almost like um, uh, minks, uh, mink, sorry. And uh, they're they're really like a tunneling hunting creature. And so um, that's their behaviour is to get into things and tunnel through and they love to run through socks and tubes and things like that. Do they they've make burrows? I was going to say, they've got a sharp teeth too, oh, haven't they, Oh, yeah, yeah, they have. And they can nip. Right. They can nip. I have been uh, on the receiving end once or twice. So are they diggers when you say they like tunnels? Do they like making their own Well, no, they, they go down tunnels to hunt for, say, rabbits and things like that. But they don't live in tunnels? No. Normally? Not so much. But uh, they do, i tell you what they do love to live in is um, clothing drawers and beds and pillows. They are very much lounge about creatures. A lot of people will keep them in enclosures, which is a really good idea. But because of their shape and their flexibility, they're uh, they good escape artists as well. They look really funny in their hammocks in the enclosures. That's right. And they hang out them and they're relaxing as if they're sunbaking on an island somewhere with (laughs) palm trees. It's amazing. Why do they smell so much, though? Well, the funny thing is now they do have this smell. I'm not... Jane's laughing. Jane, they do. Yeah. They do smell. I believe you. The male... The male... The male uh, ferret has uh, scent glands all over their body, and it's under the influence of testosterone. Oh. So if they're desexed, particularly at a, a youngish age, like we do with cats and dogs, then that um, scent is not being produced. They also have very active um, and smelly anal glands, which we know dogs also get, and again, that's under testosterone. So they you can reduce the smell by about 90%. They do have an odour. A lot of people bath their ferrets. Yes. Yeah, and groom them. Good idea. Uh, and they, they come up beautiful. And there's a whole range of different colours and um, coats that they have. So you can uh, find ferret breeders. There's a ferret rescue society, ferret organisations, and that they're a great source of information. They need also special ferret formula food too, don't they? Yeah, ferrets have got the most incredible dietary needs. They're very much a protein-based diet. They have an incredibly fast, what we call GI transit time. In other words, from one end to the other, right, from mouth to the other end. Literally, it's like four hours when they eat something. Their body has extracted all that energy out of it. That's an incredibly fast time. What it means, though, is that they do need to eat this high-energy food, a high-fat diet, with a high protein concentration. So not the carbohydrate foods that we would see with, say, dog food, but you can actually get specific ferret food. 
What a lot of people do, though, is they use kitten food, like cat kitten food. The kitten food compared to an adult cat is that it's actually got a higher fat content. Protein levels around about the same, 40 50%, but the fat content's a bit higher, and that's suitable for a ferret as well. Um, some people do like to feed them fresh meats and things like that, but again, we get into the problems of calcium and phosphorus imbalance. So probably sticking with a commercial food, either the ferret pellets or a kitten food, I think works just as well. They do get a number of diseases, and uh, the most interesting one, to me at least, is, um, well, there's some that we vaccinate for, okay, so we vaccinate them for distemper. Um, we also need to um, consider parvovirus, but in their case, it's uh, more related to the feline panleukopenia, which is a similar group of viruses. Um, they get a n- number of other diseases, though, that are concerned. The most interesting one is influenza. And when I say that, I mean human influenza. So they can actually represent a, a, a carrier source in the household. And there's been cases in houses where the person gets the flu, the ferret gets the flu. Now someone else gets the flu, and then the ferret gets the flu, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. So it can go from the ferret having the flu to the human? Yes, it yes. Can. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the ferret is just as susceptible to what to us as we are to them. Wow. So we don't want to get rid of the ferrets. Don't get me wrong. You know, they're part they're of not the... like pigs, for example, with swine flu. Well, pigs, <laughs> swine flu in pigs is actually um, it's such a the f- pigs are more at risk from us than we are from them. So it's just that it started there, but now that that particular disease has spread on, I'm not sure about the infectivity of swine flu, the H1N1, in people to ferrets, but we do know that the regular old human influenza uh, can do that. They also get heartworm. And uh, you, interestingly, I've seen a lot of people actually give them the um, heartworm chewables once a month, and that works very, very well. They are susceptible to fleas. And so, again, if you've got dogs and cats in the household or rabbits, rabbits are the same, they're susceptible to fleas, you do need to treat your whole household. So if you've got a dog with a flea allergy and you happen to have ferrets or cats or rabbits, make sure you're treating everyone. And that's where talking to someone and setting up a proper flea treatment protocol uh, to cover all the species. But, yes, ferrets can get those as well. There's a number of um, GI diseases that we commonly see. But on the other end of the... GI? Oh, sorry, gastrointestinal. So because they've got this very fast transit time and they can get some, uh, some viruses and so on, parasites, coccidia can sometimes affect them, particularly when they're young. When they get older, though, is when we really start to see some interesting things happening. Ferrets get uh, three main diseases, and we'll just wrap up on this. First one is cardiomyopathy, which is a heart muscle disease, and we've talked about this before with dogs and cats. And ferrets can also get a cardiomyopathy, and they can go into heart failure, and we treat them just the same. Um, The second thing we see is adrenal disease, and they can get adrenal tumours. And uh, I had the great privilege of um, uh, actually doing surgery on a ferret that came in with adrenal tumour disease, presented with um, hair loss down both sides of its body. We didn't have the diagnostic capabilities to say definitively that's what it was, but I was very suspicious. We went to surgery, and here was this large adrenal tumour wrapped around the vena cava, which is the large blood vessel in the back in the abdomen and we managed to get you know probably 95 percent of it out and that ferret went on and, and did quite well for a number of years so that's another disease and the third one we see which i've seen much more commonly is insulinoma and that's actually a tumor in the pancreas that's producing too much insulin so diabetes is where there's actually less insulin and your sugar goes high 
insulinoma, you've got too much insulin and your blood sugar goes very low. And so they can actually go into a coma and if it's not treated, they can die. And so the way we manage that generally is um, with medication, with uh, dietary change. Unfortunately, insulinoma is very hard to treat, but we can help them along. Question? Mm. Uh, are they happy on their own as a pet or is it better to have more than one? They are... Uh, I find them to be a very social creature. I think they do better if you've got a pair. Otherwise, you're going to have to spend most of your day entertaining your ferret. They're a very playful creature, um, and they do a lot better if there's probably two of them. Yeah. What about three? Is that a crowd? (laughs) Look, I know know some people who've had like five, six, ten ferrets. (laughs) And they've probably been very happy. They do. And they, oh, by the way, they house, uh, they litter, litter tray. They use a litter tray. So they, they can be house trained to a litter tray. Ferrets. And when they're going to the toilet every four hours after they've eaten, you do need a litter tray. <laughs> In the US, they actually have ferret shows, like like we have dog mm. shows and cat shows. They've got ferret shows with four or 500 entries, and they're showing these ferrets and all going for the championship titles. They're beautiful. Yeah. And if you ever see a ferret, if you pick it up like, you know, like a cat when you scruff it at the back of the neck, you pick up a ferret like this, this is how we handle them, pick them up and they give a big yawn, and then they just lie there relaxed. They're beautiful. And Pet Chat is the program at the moment. Danny Boss, we're going to talk snakes right now. We are, actually. So we've got Brock Palmer on the line. Hi, Brock. How are you? Fantastic. Danny, how are you doing? Good. Look, what brought this subject on for me was um, I live at Whitebridge and on the Fernley track, um, at times in summer, you can you can actually see snakes. Now, I haven't seen one so far this year. But well, there's been a report of one last week. That's right. Well, actually, one of my neighbours was walking on the track the other day and saw a red-bellied black sna- uh, snake sunbaking, and he was wondering, oh, wh- what to do? So I wanted to get you on, being our resident reptile expert. What can you do if you are now, as they're coming out now in summer, and if you are travelling in your uh, along a track or a bush track or in your backyard and you see a snake what's the go there well the most important thing is not to panic because snakes are more inclined to run away than they are to come and chase you and arc up and try to bite you this time of year they're waking up from hibernation so that all the snakes are going to be hungry and also looking for a mate to do their things for the springtime oh okay now he saw a, a red belly black snake what yep. what kind of danger do they pose well the red belly black snakes are their venom is more designed to actually hurt reptiles rather than mammals. So therefore, their venom is not exactly going to be detrimental to humans like as a, a um, total poison compared to what a brown snake can do to you. Okay. So they're not going to get out and, and attack possibly. But if it was a brown snake, there would yeah, be a different now, scenario. Yeah, brown snake, yes. They're, especially if cornered or feeling threatened, they will be more likely to arc up and try to chase someone. But still, in that situation, it's best to be calm, not to run unless it's at the point of getting close to you. But the more you try to run and move quickly, the more inclined it is to chase you. Any tips if you're working on the garden just to check the area before um, you start working for snakes? Yes, well, definitely. This time of year and going into the, the next few months, as the snakes are breeding, there's going to be a lot of hatchlings and adult snakes around. And when you're doing gardening, it's best to be wear protective clothing wear some high shoes, high heel boots, right, and also wearing leather jeans when, and also when moving and working around wood and fire wood and stuff in your backyard and bits of tin, like disturb the area first, try to scare them away 
before you actually lift things up. And it's when you do even wear gloves and stuff to do so. I find uh, this time of year too, we've got those uh, sentinel solar snake repellers and they seem to do a good job. People buy them, put them in their backyards and they emit a frequency that, that gets rid of these snakes because the snakes don't like those vibrations. That's correct. And I've even heard stories that when someone's had one in their backyard, they've also scared the snakes out of their neighbours' backyards as well. As well. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a good thing. Yeah, now, definitely. You, now you mentioned this is the time that they're going to be looking for a mate and they'll start their mating process. And with snakes and reptiles, lizards, it's mainly eggs that they lay. Yeah, well, some are live bearers, but mainly, yes, they do lay eggs. So what's the... It interests me, what's the incubation period for for these eggs? On average, because there's many different species of reptiles that lay eggs each year, but on average about 45 days. 45. And when the temperature and humidity is right, that's when when they hatch, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Now, the female, when they lay the eggs with dragons and daytime basking lizards, they will dig many pilot holes to find the right temperature and humidity in the soil to lay the eggs. And it might take them five or six goes to find that perfect spot to lay the eggs. Then they'll lay the eggs and disappear. So they don't stay with the eggs at that time? No, no, no. They do not look after the eggs. Some species of pythons, the lapids that hang out in trees, some of the pythons will incubate the eggs themselves by coming out onto a branch, warming half their body up while the other half of their body is wrapped around the eggs, and they kind of shimmer, like rub their own body together to create kinetic energy to keep the eggs at the right temperature. But with the dragons and daytime basking lizards, they lay the eggs in the right spot, and they disappear, and they go somewhere else. So do they come back when the eggs start hatching? No, no, the hatchlings have to fend for themselves in the wild, hence why... A female bearded dragon in one season will have a clutch of eggs between, say, 12 and 20 eggs and do three clutches a year. So you're looking even up to 60 babies per female a year. But then due to the hatching rate, natural selection, prey, other entities like that, not all of them, maybe even half a dozen out of the 60 will become full adults to breed for the next season. And will survive. Yeah, that's right. So once they hatch out, they've got to fend for themselves, find exactly the food right. and, and, and uh, stay secure and safe. Yep, food, hiding, basking, exactly, yes. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, right. Brock, thank you very much for your help and your knowledge in, in this particular field. It always does interest me when we talk about snakes, even though I'm not the one to sort of touch them much. <laughs> well, the terminology and the public image of a snake is the fear factors, and you know, Steve Irwin and programs like that, I believe, help put that fear factor into little kids and stuff when they're not all that dangerous. 99% of the Australian snakes will run away and hide from you, even with the vibrations of walking heavy with your feet on the ground, rather than try to arc up and bite. There's only really one species that will arc up and try to attack someone, and that's the brown snake. Thank you very much for your information, Brock. Not we'll catch up another time. time. Okay, time. bye. Bye. You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat and it's half past 12. We'll be back in just a moment and we're very happy to take your calls, 49216216. If you have a question you'd like to put to our pet vet, David Tabret, today, you're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat and Jane, a um, comment on snakes. Oh, yes. Now, um, just it was very interesting listening to Brock there. There's two things I've come across over the last couple of years. One is... Um, the identification of snakes, uh, Australian public accuracy is around about 20%. Oh, 
that's not good. Not good. And to be honest, when we see animals come in, if people do bring a dead snake in, for us to properly identify, we have to do two things. One is we count the scales between the eye and the nose, and we count the scales under the base of the tail. Now, I don't know how good your eyesight is, but from 20 yards away, I'm not sure I'd be able to pick that. And um, black snakes, brown snakes can all appear in different shades, particularly at this time of the year when they come out of hibernation. They haven't been in sunlight, so their pigment uh, can change. And it can be very difficult to define. The best uh, advice, and Brock has reinforced that, is to say, just stay well clear. Okay, Most people who are injured by snakes have been either trying to pick them up or trying to kill them. And there's no need for that. As he said, just make plenty of shaking vibration as long as you're well away from them because a brown snake would then come towards you if you're very close to them but just making the snake aware that you're there they are deaf so deaf yes so they can't actually hear no but they feel it yeah they're very sensitive to vibrations extremely absolutely and to smell yeah um so yeah you just so if you're just normally walking along a bush track or Mm -hmm. a, a paved path like the fernley track for example they would well, pick that up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the question is if they feel like they're being cut off from their escape route. That's when you can get into trouble. So don't box them in. Just stay well clear. Um, and also assume that every snake that you see is venomous. <laughs> Even though we do know that like, there's a, only a low percentage of snakes that are dangerous to us and so on. And certainly uh, red-bellied black snake, there hasn't been any fatalities in Australia since about 1969. Um but let's just assume that they're all venomous and dangerous. Stay well clear. If there is a problem and they're in your yard or in there, you know, under the house or in the roof or whatever, call in an expert. And um, there's a number of people, and I'm guessing including Brock, who'd be able to come out and remove reptiles. Mm. So that's the safest advice. Um, just a, I just want to put a cheerio out to uh, the Oxfam trail walkers. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. Oxfam is a charity organization that does fantastic work in developing nations and it sets up infrastructure programs so it's not just cash going over they help to build you know villages and schools and and water sources and things like that one of the veterinarians who works for, uh, with me anthony payton and um, his brother and sister-in-law and a friend tony phoebe and brendan and anthony they're off doing the oxfam trail walk now get this guys they started at seven this morning and I don't know if they're listening because they're, they're somewhere between Brooklyn, that's where they started, and they're walking to Mossman, or rather running, I should say. Running? Yes. When are they expecting to arrive? They're hoping to get there tonight at midnight. Can wow. you believe that? And they, and it's through the bush, so they've got to go up cliffs, and oh, it's incredible. The, so they're following the Great North Track walk? I'm not sure of the exact uh, location, but if you go to oxfam.org.au and click on the events and look at the Sydney um, Oxfam Trail Walker, you can even log on and look at the different teams, and his team is the iPhysio Incredibles. You can even make a donation. Yes, he, he did remark that uh, <laughs> he said... They have had trouble um, training because they've been out saving the world because <laughs> they're superheroes. <laughs> but you can log on and make a donation. And I, I logged on last night and had a look, and we've made a donation in support of their team. You can pick any team. Um, and Oxfam have raised so far over $2 million. 
And I understand that's 100 kilometres. 100 kilometres, I know. Brooklyn, yeah. I know, I was puff walking up the hill here from the car park. <laughs> they will, of course, be keeping an eye out for snakes on the way. Oh, yeah, well, push. that's probably one of the things, isn't it, going through that area? And hopefully not so much at the Mossman end when it's dark, but um, <laughs> going through the scrub. Different kinds of snakes, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, so um, good good luck to all the guys who are doing that and the support crew. Yes. I think it's fantastic. So log on and have a look, Oxfam. They're the great charity to support. Now, can I ask a question? Hmm. It's becoming quite warm, of course, and uh, dogs, as you've said, sometimes find it difficult to keep warm, keep cool, rather, when it's warm weather. Some, what about dogs digging holes in the garden to keep cool? Is that oh, something they'd... to be expected, or what can we do to make keep the garden nice at the same time? Well, I guess, yeah, provide them with a, a place where they can rest in the cool. And so if it is a cool thing for them to do, they'll not cool as in the Fonz type cool, but cool as in the temperature cool, they'll go and dig, a, dig the soil up and lie down on the cool soil. So that's a really comfortable thing for them to do. You probably don't want them to be doing that too often. So make sure that bedding is um, under shelter and uh, and out of the out of the elements, so to speak, and also multiple sources of fresh, cool water. Again, so that it's not a bucket, just one bucket sitting under a dripping tap around the side of the house that gets the afternoon sun. That's not suitable. Um, you know, it's going to be contaminated. The water warms up. The dog won't drink it. I think I remember last year, Danny, we were talking about, you brought in a product, actually, that had a continual water source. We had, um, that's right, the drinking fountain. That's it, drinking fountains. There's the yep. drinking fountains, and there's also one that you can attach to your tap, which has a sensor on it, and when the dog approaches the tap, uh, the sensor picks up the dog and lets the water start running. It opens the tap up. And, and that's, for, um, that's for dogs that like to drink running water, running water. instead of a bowl of yep. still water. That's right. Mm. But there are a few other products. There are cool coats now where you actually uh, soak the coat in some water and it'll remain cool for about eight hours and you can put the coat on the dog. And uh, we use those when we're showing our dogs in the summer because they can get fairly hot and you put them on. And dog bedding that is also gets soaked in the water, but the top of it still remains dry, but the bottom is, is a bit wetter and therefore cooler, so the dog can oh. lay on this cool bed. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's pretty clever. The um, A lot of breeds of dogs that we see as well have varying coats, and you see these very thick-coated dogs, and sometimes people will will shear or clip the coats back, and that can be quite helpful. But what is the biggest thing that helps these long-coated dogs is they often have a double coat. They've got a very thick underlayer coat and a long primary coat, and it's the underlayer coat that keeps them... Uh, it's almost like wool, and it keeps them warm in winter, and what happens is at the end of, you know, about now really, you can buy special brushes that actually strip that out because it'll start to fall out, but it gets trapped there. It's like a matting. And as you strip it out, then they're left with this long coat that does allow uh, air to move through the through and onto the skin and keep the dog cool. Now, dogs don't sweat. They can, or sorry, through their paws, but not on their general skin. So generally we try and cool down. When it gets too warm, we'll perspire, and the moisture on our skin, as the air moves over it, um, it evaporates and cools the skin. But dogs don't have that, so they pant, and they often need water to keep their throat moist, so hence the cool drinking water, but they'll pant. And uh, we've discussed heat stroke before, and I think we'll we'll have to talk about it again next month, um, about the perils and keeping your dogs 
protected from heat stress. And oftentimes it's this start of the season. It's not so much December, January where we get problems because most people um, sort of look out the window and go, oh, it's a bit too hot to go for a walk, so I'll stay at home. But what happens is in spring, no, let's get out and take the dog for a walk, and the dog's temperature rapidly escalates. Remember, if you've got a question for David today, 49216216 will get you through to him. Now, a friend of mine's got a dog with arthritis, um, David, and arthritis in the hips, and uh, so much it seems to be quite painful. So that when mm. they brush the dog, because it's a border collie, and so lots of lots of fur—you don't call it fur, do you—a coat that needs to be kept in order, otherwise it'd get matted. Uh, when they brush that, the dog sometimes is so uh, in pain, so much in pain that it turns around and bites. Okay, well, arthritis is a very common condition in older dogs and uh, border collies interestingly I, I tend to see that because they're a very active dog so they have an active lifestyle and they're very energetic and if they don't quite have the right conformation uh, or there's other maybe previous injuries in a joint then they can set up a process of degeneration wear and tear and that progresses to inflammation and joint pain um, one of the things that happens with that is that there's often bony changes so if we x-ray them we can see on an x-ray that there's changes happening in that joint but the actual uh, process of degeneration and arthritis is is going on well before that well before that and so we've talked about uh, dietary supplements massage and exercise importantly like us for joints and arthritis the muscles around the joint provide the best support for that joint so regular gentle exercise and often swimming is a really good idea for dogs like that if um, brushing is actually causing pain, um, then it could it might not be direct pain in the area, but the nerves could be very sensitised around that area because they're inflamed. And so um, the degree of response may not be relative to the degree of injury in, in the joint, if that, you know, if that makes sense. It's just that the nerves become hypersensitive. Very, you know, it's like, oh, don't touch me there. That might hurt. Yes. Um, as, you know, if you get a bad back yourself, you can't let anyone touch you on us on that side so um, massage is helpful a lot of people are also using acupuncture in dogs and that seems to be helpful as I said gentle exercise dietary um, factors like uh, dietary supplements with glucosamine and chondroitin um, also provide a benefit um, in some cases surgery is required and it may be that the changes are that severe that the dog actually needs maybe a hip replacement Believe it or not, we can do hip replacements. They're now doing elbow replacements and even knee replacements in dogs with artificial implants. And it provides a huge benefit to the dogs. And I've seen, I remember probably about 12 years ago, a dog that I referred for a hip replacement. His Both hips were bad, but he did so well with one hip having surgery that he was almost back to you know 90% normal. So he only ended up getting the one hip done, but it made a huge difference. So there's a lot of things that can happen, and just regular non-steroidal medication is often the and, first call. And would, uh, as summer comes along, clipping the coat rather than having it long and needing to brush it regularly, would that be a good thought? Well, because of that double coat that we see with a lot of dogs, and border collies are not immune to this. They Sometimes, particularly in the cooler climates, they might develop that thicker undercoat. That's still got to be stripped out. And even if you clip them, what you're left with is actually just a shorter, thick coat. Um, and so temperature-wise, you might want to still take that out. So it may be medication, it may be massage, um, 
it might might need an assessment by a veterinarian to decide if it is that severe, what else needs to happen. But uh, clipping doesn't necessarily uh, avoid the need for stripping the coat. You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat, and we have a caller. Kay joins us. Hello, Kay. Hello, how are you? Hi, Kay. How are you going? Very well, thank you. I do have a question about one of my dogs, but mm-hmm. I was listening to the snake talk, and I wanted to tell me how you to tell me how I can differentiate between a small baby snake and what I think is legless lizard. Well, how do they move? Do mm, they move the same way? Uh, yes, from close enough from close enough that you want to get to, you know, we yes, don't want to get too close. They sort of undulate like a snake. Do they the legless lizards? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the time we've had them brought in, mm. um, identified because maybe a cat's killed it or something, and then oh, right, yeah. and and we're left with that going through the identification process. Um, there are often very tiny vestigial limbs on them, and mm. so that that's probably the thing that usually clues us in with those. But that's um, you can catch them. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I've been finding a few lately, and being the time of the year. Um, I just want to be sure I haven't got a nest of brown snakes somewhere. Yeah, and actually that reminds me of one of the things is that brown snakes um, from birth mm-hmm. are deadly venomous. Oh, are they? Yeah, oh. they don't have to be any size. They are deadly from right, okay. from the moment they um, hatch. So just let them go. If I turn up a rock and there's one there, just let it go. Yes, don't get any closer to investigate, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. Thought I'd, it just reminded yep. me when I was listening to the talk on them. Yeah, safety first. Yes. The question I originally have is, um, why do dogs get agitated when their owner sneezes? I have three dogs, but only one has this problem. Gets quite agitated when I have a sneezing fit. I've never seen that. Um, oh. <laughs> you've got a very special dog. <laughs> oh, well, uh, he'll tell you. Let's, uh, well, let's think about it. Okay, mm. if the dog's reacting to it and gets agitated, then it's mm. going to be some communication thing. I'd imagine that there's the dog's interpreting that in some way. Um, mm. And so it may be, since you're the, the leader of the pack in the house, then the dog might be reacting to saying either, oh, oh I don't know if you're all right, or... Mm. Look out, we should be scared because there's um, a big elephant about to run over the hill or something. Okay. <laughs> he sneezes quite a bit himself. Uh huh. Um, for, you know, just no, no reason that I can see, but. Um, He's a sympathetic sneezer. A sympathetic sneezer, yes. He's a multi Shih Tzu, and so is one of the others, and the other one's a full Shih Tzu, but neither of those two react in any way at all. So I've, I, I was just curious. Yeah, I've never seen that before. Oh, right. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing... for 15 years. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> He's probably just tapping into... He doesn't quite understand what's going on and thinks... He might think I'm distressed. Yes, yeah, so are you okay? Mm. And, and reacting to that. I do swear a bit when I get a sneezing fit. <laughs> oh, damn, you know. <laughs> do they sing as well? Oh, he sings. <laughs> if you start singing, he sings. No, they run away. <laughs> They're also very sensible dogs. <laughs> uh, thanks for your call, Kate. Okay, thanks, thank Kay. you. This is Two and RFM's Pet Chat, and Sam joins us now. Hello, Sam. Oh, hello. Is uh, speak to David? Please. Yes, he's Hi, here. Hi, Sam. Hi, David. How can I help you? Oh, I hope you can. <laughs> Earlier on on your program, which is a good program. Thank you. Right. Um, somebody was talking about snakes and this sort of business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'd like to know, can you identify lizards and this sort of stuff? Um, most lizards are fairly distinctive and um, we look at various features on them there's some very good books around that you can get and even get from the library that um, would be helpful for identification the other um, resource that i would look to is either through the um, there's a group called SOFAR, which is a society of frogs and reptiles and i know that they actually have uh, little booklets for lizards uh, on various species mm-hmm. so they're probably the best people to get in contact with they actually have um, uh, a number of um, booklets for, as I said, snakes and um, frogs and uh, lizards as well, and also tortoises. Yeah. And so you'd be able to tap into their information, I think. Yeah. And well, um, you can get in contact with them through, uh, where was it be? I know that they meet they meet out at West Walsing Community Hall. I think it's the first or second Tuesday. Tuesday of the month. But I would um, I and would probably get onto them through the um, Wild Wetland Centre out at oh, Shortland. Yeah. Sam, I can also give you um, after the call if you hang on. I can give you a phone well, number I you just, can call. Just ask hmm. a question. You, you may be able to answer. I don't know. We've got. Um, well, I think everybody's got these little lizards running around the yard, right? Mm-hmm. Little grey things and whatnot. Fantastic things. I've got uh, quite a few blue tongues, which are fantastic. And the other day I was um, shoveling some soil around and uh, for my garden and whatnot. I got some you know, good sized worms and I thought I'll put them back in the garden, mm. right? This sort of business. Yep. I was scratching around and this lizard was buried, it was still alive, it was buried. It probably would have been about oh, 12 inches long and about three-eighths of an inch diameter, right? Okay, yep. Um, a grey colour, had legs, Yep. four legs. Uh, I, I picked it up and underneath its belly it appeared to have um, scales very similar to a, um, to a snake. Yeah, there's, we do get some rather large skinks and uh, there's, a, there's a, quite a few... Um, in this region um, of these Australian land skinks. And they're, they're very common, although um, oftentimes birds swoop in and grab them. So we don't, don't often see them out and about because of that. But um, you're very lucky if you've got those larger type lizards in the in your yard um, because it means that they've got a good habitat there. Mm. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we preserve that for them. Um, and I think if we chase up with the Society of Frogs and Reptiles, we can get an identification for you for sure. Yeah. So if you want to just hang on and then Danny will get the phone number for you afterwards. Oh, I, I can look it up on the internet, yeah, but I just thought you talked to... Um, what, um, to Brock, Bob. yes, our, our reptile man. Yeah. Hey? Yes. yes. So that's... Yes. We'll, we'll, follow, we'll follow that up and we've got some details so we can um, get some identification for you. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. I, um, I'm just surprised this thing was, was underground. I'd never seen lizards sort of, um, in, like... Burying. <laughs> buried. Mm, sounds Yeah, well, they'll, they'll make burrows and um, try and settle down away from the predators, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, right. for, thanks for your call, Sam. That's great. Thanks, Sam. We're getting close to the end of Pet Chat, but, Danny, you've got a, a, something that's happening in Sydney. 
Okay, it's it's still not happening for a while, but I thought I'd mention it because people might want to get on the website and have a look and see what it's all about. But it's the first event of its kind, and it's the Purina World Dog Games. And and even the emblem, it's amazing. It's actually got like the Olympic rings, but it's the shape of a paw. <laughs> and then they're different colours. It, it is great. Log on to www.worlddoggames.com and you can get all sorts of information, even videos of dogs performing all sorts of athletic uh, activities. Basically, what are some of them they do? Okay, well, basically, the, the, the World Dog Games is going to be to try, the, to try to find the top dog in, and they need to be all canine athletes. And they're going to be doing agility, fly ball, canine disc, and I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's diving dock dogs. So it's at the Acer Arena, October 31 and November 1. It's over the weekend. And uh, something to look forward to. But the diving dog dogs are dogs that will actually run across a dock. A toy will be thrown to them through this pool and they will jump into this pool and the dog that'll jump the furthest wins. With a double twist. <laughs> With a double twist. Mm. And Pike. <laughs> That's a good That's one. Right. Grant Daniel is going to be the host of the show. There'll be obviously lots of pet activities happening around there. But something to have a look at a look forward to and buy tickets to. Sounds great. Mm. And that's happening in Sydney, not too far away. And that brings us to the end of Pet Chat today. Thank you, Dr. David Tabret. Thanks, Jane. And thank you, Danny Boss. Thank you. And Pet Chat will be back next Friday after the midday news.